Well, uh, for those of you who come along regularly, you know that we're working through this series called The Outlawed Jesus. Uh, it seems a strange title maybe, but just to remind ourselves, what we're looking at is a number of occasions where Jesus, in the words that he says, confronts uh, a number of, if you like, and I want to, I'll use the word rules, but put rules in uh, inverted commas, rules which are either defined by the religious leaders, and we find that on many, many occasions, Jesus confronts the idea of religion uh, and brings in uh, an idea of relationship. But secondly, he, on many occasions, he confronts the rules that we create for ourselves in terms of the way that we think life is. Uh, We continue with those rules. So to some extent, I guess it's fair to say that the religious rules that we think about are often the ones that uh, disappear relatively quickly. We're not living in a culture which still holds to the rules of, uh, of the day of Jesus. And so we're less likely to see some of those. But there are ways of thinking which are common to human beings, which Jesus confronts. Now, the reason that we're looking at this is because we need to remind ourselves that to come into a relationship with the living God, Jesus, through Jesus Christ, means that he will in some way confront us. He will challenge us. We need to be ready for that. One of the things that I think is a a crying shame, really, in the way that the Christian faith is often presented in the world in which we live, I guess to try to encourage people to come to faith in the Lord Jesus, is that it's something that doesn't have to affect us too much. Actually, it has to affect us massively. It has to really challenge us. It has to uproot us. Now, that uprooting is a great thing. The change is a great thing, but change there must be in the way that we think about things. The, one that, the point that we're looking at this afternoon is Jesus, the outlaw to our, our ideas of logic. Jesus, the outlaw to our ideas of logic. One of the things that the Bible encourages us to see, the message of the gospel in its, as presented through the Gospels and through the New Testament, and the bigger picture of God in the world and God engaging with this world, the idea is this. It is simple, yet at the same time, it is infinite. It is something that we can understand, and it is something which is beyond our understanding. It is both of those things. That's one of the key things that we're going to look at this afternoon. Uh, Albert Einstein said this, if you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it well enough. I think that's a really, really great phrase, isn't it? If you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it well enough. That is a massive kind of confrontating confronting challenge to somebody who stands up and tries to explain the message of the Bible. You've got to explain it simply. At the same time, it is way too big in some ways to explain simply. But when we think about that, I think one of the things, if we position Einstein back in the 1800s and he said that, 
If you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it well enough. I think one of the dangers of extending that way of thinking, we end up in a real problem because we now live in a world which thinks like this. Now, really listen to this explanation. We live in a world, I think, where if we can't explain it, it can't be true. If we can't fully explain it, it can't be true. There's a, there's a, um, those of you who know about the Hadron Collider over in, uh, in Europe, they're kind of bunging molecules and particles around that to try to do what? Well, at least to try to do this, to prove the standard model in physics. Now, the idea is they've got this kind of huge model of how things are what, how we are, really, how matter is, and all of that kind of thing. And there's this little missing thing which you're trying to prove. And that is, if you like, the missing link to the model. Now, the way we've reached in our way of thinking is once we can prove that that exists, then all of that becomes true. If we think about God like that, we are in big, big trouble. If we think about the idea of God as though God is something that we can bring down to our way of thinking and we can box it all off in every little detail and have it all worked out so that we understand God in, our enti- in its entirety, if we reach that point of thinking when we come to the Bible, we are in big trouble. Because there are parts of the Bible where God deliberately defies our logic. And the reason is this. If we bring God down to our level of understanding where we can explain him in every detail, he is then constrained to our ability and our intelligence. And he is no longer worth worshipping. He's no longer worth worshipping, is he? If we can explain him in all of his detail, he's no longer bigger and greater and by definition, by necessity, a being who we bow down in front of because he is beyond our comprehension if we can explain him in every way. But if we realize and we understand that God is beyond our explanation, then he remains somebody who is worthy of our worship. That's why. We need to make sure that in some ways God is continuously defying our logic. Now, this is one of the passages, I think, where Jesus really does that in a very powerful way. The background to this, we've got this little section here where Jesus is talking, we're breaking in part way, where he says, I am the bread of life. See that in verse 48. Bit of background to this. Earlier on, we would, it would have been great if we could have read the whole of the chapter. Earlier on in the chapter, in fact, from the beginning of uh, Mark, uh, John chapter 6, we've got this account where Jesus feeds 5,000 people. Those of you who know the story uh, um, from John chapter 6, we have this occasion where Jesus has 5,000, probably more than 5,000 people in front of him and he feeds them from a negligible amount of food five loaves, two fishes, and he just continually hands out and hands out and hands out uh, 
So his disciples are distributing this food and he's feeding 5,000 people. That's the kind of background. That's the connection with this phrase, I am the bread of life. So if you go back, you see, well, bread is there. So that's why, that's the connection of why he's using this particular description of himself, I am the bread of life. There is another connection which is made in exactly the same chapter as Jesus continues discussions with those who he's talking to. He then talks about another occasion which is hundreds and hundreds of years earlier where God's people are out in the desert. Uh, And on that occasion, God provides food for them. It's called manna. It appears every morning and they go out into the desert and they collect it and they they are provided with, if you like, bread, food. There's the connection. But if you think about it, there is a shift that is taking place. Moses gives the food that God provides. Now, it is very, very clear If you go back in the Old Testament, it is very clear that it is God who gives that food. (laughs) They wake up in the morning and they do nothing about it, but it's there. There's food for them. And then Jesus says, now in a sense, God has provided for you food again. He's in the early part of the chapter, because I've distributed food to those who needed it. So God gave you food way back then. God has given you food now, but, and here's the twist, the food that God provided that you need to focus on is not the food that came out of my hands that you ate, It's me. I am the food. Now the connection is this. God gave that, but ultimately it is God himself present with you who is the giver. I am the one who provides you with food. I am the bread of life. We're going to think about that In three ways. Firstly, we're going to see true life. Secondly, we're going to see true bread. Thirdly, we're going to see true hope. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I've watched two films in the past few weeks, um, which really kind of emphasized to me how difficult it is for us to think about the value of life. One was uh, a film called Children of Men. Those of you who've seen Children of Men, it's set in the future. It's this kind of futuristic idea of a terrible world, a world where life and society as we know it has kind of collapsed. It's, it's 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 a story, it's not real. But in the future, the idea of living is actually just surviving, getting through, coping, living. That's one story that made me think we're not like that. To live is, is way more than that for us, isn't it? 
The other one was just last night, actually. I watched Les Miserables, which is based on a true story. And it takes you back to the time of the French Revolution, where to live was just surviving, coping, getting through, living. That was real. It's not imaginary. It's not a story. It was real. It was an occasion in our history where just to live was a privilege. And because we live in a day where we are provided with far more than probably we've ever had before, because life is relatively so much more comfortable, I think we lose sight of the value of life. Jesus comes to a people here where he says, I've come to give you life, to a people who were scratching to survive, to a people who are living with hardship on a day-to-day basis. I've come to give you life. Therefore, for them, life would have become, the idea that Jesus came to give life would have been so much more precious, possibly, than for us. In fact, the, the comfort of our lives allows words from Jesus to to lose their impact. And they lose their impact because we say, life, do you know what? I've got life. Life is great. Yeah, I look out, a whole load of you are uh, a lot of years younger than me. You're looking forward towards life. You're looking forward into the future. You've got ideas of what you might do. You've got ideas and thoughts of how you might shape your life. But the reality is, for every one of us, there is going to come a crunch when we are faced with, what is life all about? What is it? Because right now, life is kind of running through my fingers like dry sand. It's disappearing really quickly. You know, the older you get, you feel as if life is disappearing through your fingers faster and faster. What is life all about? What is true life? Because if we we shape the idea of true life by the comforts of the life that we currently enjoy, we miss the point. What Jesus is saying is, I have come to give you life which is eternal. That's what I've come to do. Look, verse 49 and verse 50 says, look, here's the thing. Your ancestors, this is back to the Moses occasion, your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. They died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. He's actually saying, he's reinforcing the idea. As long as you think and look upon bread as the tangible stuff that you break into pieces and you eat, if you think the value of my presence, if you think the value of me being here is because I can dish out bread and fish and feed you in your stomachs, you've missed it. It's the same as those who have gone before. Your ancestors ate food like that and they died. The reality is, I've come 
so that you might eat and not die. Not die. Now, there were those, I'm sure, that, that makes you think, well, hang on a sec. There were those who trusted in Jesus back there, wasn't there? They trusted in Jesus, but they've died. <laughs> How does that work? The logic works like this. If you eat temporary bread, you will live and you'll die. If you eat eternal bread, you will die, but you'll live. That's the idea that Jesus is introducing to our thinking. And the bread that you need to eat is me. It's me that you need to eat. Now, quite honestly, that is illogical, isn't it? In fact, we can see from the very response that follows that, they really, that, that those around him really struggled. There was a dispute. The Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? How can that work? How can he do that? That is illogical. You know, does it mean that we have literally got to eat Jesus to live? Well, obviously not. That's why the argument, why the discussion erupted. How can he do that? How can it be possible for us to eat Jesus' body? Now, isn't this really interesting? Look at the way that Jesus responds. They've got this confusion going on. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So we've got true life is eternal life. Now we've got true bread. This is where we're going to go into true bread. How can this man give us this flesh to eat? Get discussion going on. The Jews, that's, for those of you who've been around during this series, that's really the religious leaders. They've got this dispute going on. They've got the idea right now, okay, Jesus, let me reduce you down to my logic. Let me bring you down to my way of thinking. Let me work it out. And Jesus' response to that is not to gently explain. Isn't that fascinating? When they've got this dispute going on, he sees that the issue is that they are not considering what he's saying from a worshipping point of view. They are considering what he's saying and bringing him down to their level. And so what he does is he makes it even worse for their thinking. Look at how, it, how we carry on with, the chap, with the, uh, this particular section. Very truly, I tell you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. <laughs> Isn't that incredible? Jesus does not. Oh, okay, I can see that it's confusing. Let me explain. Let, let me just, he doesn't do that. He says, okay, I've said you've got to eat, eat of me. Now, because you're behaving in a way which is 
uh, disputing what I'm saying, reducing me to your logic, I'm going to make it even worse. I'm going to say, actually, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. I'm going to make it even worse for your thinking if you're going to approach me like that. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise them up at the last day. Do you see the connection now that Jesus is beginning to make? I am the connection by eating of me to eternal life. To eternal life. If you eat of me, I'll raise you up on the last day. That's why if you eat of me, you might die, but you will live. Because on the last day, I will raise you up. You'll live. That's what he's saying. I, I can imagine. Can you imagine what it must have been like for the, for the religious leaders when Jesus said that? It must, I think they must have been seething by this point. I think they must have been so angry. You, you've, you know, your logic is offensive already, Jesus, quite honestly. Your logic is offensive. You're saying that we have to eat of you instead of eat of what God has provided. But now you're making it even more offensive by using the idea of eating your flesh and drinking your blood. Let's look, shall we? Not from the point of view of those religious leaders. Let's just take a moment and allow ourselves to look from the view of hope. Let's allow ourselves to look from where we sit today. See little connections? What is Jesus talking about? My body. My body and my blood are your provision are your food. My sacrifice is good for you. I am the bread because I am the sacrifice. Some folks have taken the view that what Jesus, any of you have got an idea of the message of the Bible, I'm sure you're beginning to think, Jesus' body, Jesus' blood, body broken, blood shed, sacrifice made, eating. We've got some connections there, haven't we? I'm sure some of you are thinking, well, is this beginning to talk about communion? Is this beginning to talk about a sacrifice of a body broken? Is this beginning to talk about bloodshed and beginning to eat and drink that body and that blood? Here's the, here's the logic I think that Jesus is encouraging us to take. I don't believe he is talking specifically at this point about communion. He's not. He's talking about the moment that becomes our food 
and our provision. He's talking about the sacrifice that communion then remembers. So if we've got Jesus who's sitting here talking about eating his body, drinking his blood, don't go sideways to the idea of communion, body and blood. Stand here and say, body and blood provided as a sacrifice points me up there to Calvary. And then when I get over here and I start to think about body and blood, that takes me back to there, Calvary. It takes me back to a sacrifice which is given. It takes me back to the idea that he is my provision. For those of you who want an idea to take away and to think about, to dig into over this next period of time, think about this, ponder on this. The priests were provided for, nourished by the sacrifices that were given. Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 18. This is the share due to due for the priests. Sorry, Deuteronomy 18 verse 3. This is the share due the priests from the people who sacrifice a bull or a sheep. The shoulder, the internal organs and the meat from the head. In other words, the priests ate, fed, were nourished on the sacrifice. And then Jesus comes along and he becomes the sacrifice. And then Peter tells us, all of you who believe are priests. Now you feed on the sacrifice. Jesus becomes the bread. He becomes the provision. Now, now what does food do for us? What does bread actually do? It nourishes us. It stops us from dying. It allows us to grow. And Jesus says, spiritually speaking, I am that which stops you from dying. I am that which causes you to grow. I am what becomes your provision. That logic is just beyond human thinking, isn't it? I am the bread. I am the provision. So we've got true life is eternal. True bread, which gives us life, is the eternal Jesus. But this was 2,000 years ago. (coughs) So where is hope for us today? Verse 40 of this chapter which we haven't got up on the screen, but I'll read it to you, makes a really important connection. True hope looks like this. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son 
and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise them up at the last day. So Jesus has already said in this chapter that your hope is by looking to the Son, believing in him, and you will be raised up at the last day. Now look at verse 54. Whoever eats my blood, eats my, sorry, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise them up at the last day. There's kind of a, there's the same pattern of those two verses. You look to Jesus and in believing in him, you will be raised at the last day. The way of expressing that is by eating of Jesus is a way of expressing our belief in him so that we'll be raised up at the last day. Athanasius, sorry, Augustine of Hippo, great theologian uh, from the first few centuries, 600 AD, he said this, <coughs> whoever has believed has eaten. Now, it's really important. Whoever has believed has eaten. He wanted to make it really, really clear in our thinking. It's not whoever has eaten has believed. Communion, which we see in a kind of a shadowy way in these words, is a way of expressing that I believe. It's a way of me saying, when Jesus said, he's my bread, he's my sustenance, I believe that. I believe that he's the one in his sacrifice that is going to make me live on the day that I die. In the last day when he returns, he's going to raise me from the dead. Even though I'll be dead in the ground, he's going to raise me from the dead. I'll live. I believe that. And the way that I express that belief is by sharing together with other people who believe exactly the same. And we do that by sharing communion together. Because he said it back there, and it points to Calvary, and we share together by eating bread and drinking wine together, and it points to Calvary. Therefore, really important, we're going to be sharing communion together on a Sunday in a few weeks' time. We need to really make sure that we've got this drilled into our minds. When we eat, it is not a way of making sure that we're safe. Whoever has believed has eaten figuratively. Therefore, if you eat physically, it's because you're saying you believe. You believe. That's really important when we come to communion. We're going to be looking at, looking that, at that again in a few weeks' time. There's something really beautiful in these next few verses. What is real hope? It looks like this. Look at verse 56 and 57. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. 
back in the early development of the Christian church, there was a huge debate. We've been looking at this at Yima in the past few days. There's a huge debate, and it centers on this question. What is the God of the Bible like? Athanasius was really central to that discussion. We've got the Athanasian Creed. In the Athanasian Creed, it nails down the idea of the God of the Bible. Father, Son, and Spirit. Holy Spirit. Look at the way Jesus expresses. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. Who is Jesus? The Son of the living God. The eternally begotten of the Father. The one who finds his life and being and identity and his whole who he is. So much so that Jesus said, I and the Father are one. We are in one sense inseparable. I dwell in him. He dwells in me. We are united together. And in that separation that's beyond our understanding that we see here because Jesus is in the world. The communion, the relationship that we see worked out in the Bible right the way through the Gospel of John is that Jesus' relationship with the Father is secured by the Holy Spirit. It works through that. And then look what Jesus says for those who believe. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. How does Jesus live? Well, he said earlier, because of the Father. And then he says, whoever believes in me will live because I will dwell and remain in him. I'll remain in him. Jesus has died on the cross 2,000 years ago. He's been raised and has returned to heaven. He is not here. And yet this verse says, he remains in everyone who believes. That is the God of the Bible. It is absolutely unique. The idea that God indwells those who believe in him. We are secured because of his indwelling presence. Why are we safe? Because Jesus dwells in me. True hope. Believing in the one who dwells in me. 
John uses a really important word here. He uses the Greek word sarx, which means flesh. Could have used body, but he uses the word flesh. He uses it right at the very beginning of his book as well, where he says this, the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. That's great news when Jesus dwells amongst us. Becoming flesh and dwelling amongst us. But this verse says even more. It says that when he returns, for those who believe in him, he dwells amongst us. I will dwell in them. That is what gives us hope. It's what secures us. It's what makes sure that it is not dependent on us keeping up our belief in him, working hard at believing in him. It's the fact that Jesus dwells within us through the Holy Spirit. And that challenges our logic, confronts our logic. Because if if any of us think that we can get to the bottom of that mystery... We don't even, we're not even beginning to understand it if we think we can get to the bottom of it. The reality is he dwells within us. The triune God, defi- defying our logic, yet at the same time giving us hope.